A lot of people ask me, how do you tell the difference between burnout and depression? Because they often are confused with each other. Mm. And so my description is, or my definition is, that burnout is a feeling of being tired from life, whereas depression is a feeling of being tired of life. This is Expanding Horizons. Candid conversations, passionate people, important issues, Produced by the Jesuit Institute, South Africa. Judy Clippen is a Martha Beck certified life coach. She offers individual, group and corporate coaching and workshops. She's the author of Recover from Burnout. Burnout wreaks havoc in multiple areas of our lives, as she herself discovered from personal experience. I am Russell Pollitt and this is Expanding Horizons. Judy, thank you very much for coming in and for talking to us. To begin with, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, your family, your hobbies and your interests. Thanks for inviting me here. Well, I'm a Joburg girl. I was born here in 1970. I've lived in Johannesburg within a five-kilometer radius my whole life. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, grew up in Johannesburg, went to school in Johannesburg, went to university at Wits University. I do have a master's from the University of Leicester, but I did that distance learning. My parents were very committed South Africans. My mom was a social worker. My dad was an entrepreneur. They both unfortunately died of lung cancer nine years apart from each other. Hmm. So as I said to my brother on the morning that my mother had died, we're orphans now. And he said, you're 35. And I said, I know, but we're still orphans. <laughs> so I'm very close to my brother and sister. They're both older than me. I'm the baby. We all live also within a two-kilometer radius of each other. So we Very see well planned. Very, very well planned. We see each other often. We are Jewish. We're not particularly observant Jews, but it's very much part of our identity. And Jews, like Catholics, have a very strong sense of community mm. and feeling of kind of needing to give back and give to charity and that kind of thing. So I think that that probably has led me to the work that I do, which has always been about development and about making a contribution to the country. Hobbies, I read a lot. I have gone through phases of painting and pottery and a lot of other things. I'm an adult child, so I do get bored quickly and have difficulty following some things through from beginning to end. But yeah, I read, I walk, I go for walks with my dogs, I spend time with my family. Yeah, I do some volunteer work. You said you studied at WITS. What did you do at WITS? I did a BA in psychology and African literature. And then I did a, an H debate, a higher diploma in education. Now it's called the PGCE. So I'm an English and guidance teacher for high school. Mm -hmm. So uh, you, you studied to be an English and a guidance teacher, or you studied teaching. Yeah. But now your career has kind of moved into life coaching. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, it kind of took a bit of a detour because I always wanted to be a guidance teacher. I wanted mm -hmm. to help children decide what they wanted to do with their lives and to kind of prepare them for the world. And then when I was doing my age debate, I actually had the opportunity to go to Wits University, the Graduate School of Public and Development Management, which is now called the Wits School of Governance, mm. and work on the policing program, which was a program that had been set up in 1993 to integrate the 11 police agencies that had formed the South African Police Service. And mm -hmm. so it was a whole kind of change management skills development program. And I, through a variety of 
happy events landed up there as the administrator. And then at the end of the year, the person who was running the program went to join the Secretariat. It was 1994, so the Secretariat had just been built. And they asked me to take over the program. So I said, OK, I'll do it for a year while I do my age to bed. And then I was hooked. It was so fascinating. I ended up staying there for 10 years. I did my master's in criminal justice studies, did all sorts of wonderful, exciting things. Then I left because I thought I can't be in the same place since I was 23. I need to kind of expand my horizons a bit, if you'll pardon the pun. <laughs> <laughs> and I consulted for... A couple of years, still working in the crime and violence prevention sector. And then I really got burnt out, mm. big burnout. And I went to my doctor and I said, I think I need antidepressants. And he spoke to me for a while and he said, you don't, you're not depressed. He said, you're having a spiritual crisis, mm. which now in later years, I he was saying you've got burnout. But the way he described it was you're having a spiritual crisis. And he said, you need to take some time off and decide what you want to do with your life. Because his point was that I had got so disconnected from myself and I was so overwhelmed by the work that I had been doing. Mm. So he said, take some time off. So luckily, I had a little bit of money. So mm. I took time off. And six weeks into my sabbatical, I woke up one morning and I thought, you know, I've always wanted to be a life coach mm. and I'm going to do it. I was writing my morning pages and I literally watched my hand write for the last six years I've wanted to be a Martha Beck life coach and now I'm going to do it. And I leapt up and went and did some research and saw that she was offering a life coach training program six weeks later, applied, and then 24 hours later I'd been accepted. Luckily I had the money to go and do it and off I went six weeks later to America to study the course. Wow. What is life coaching? What does a life coach do, just perhaps for people who are not sure? So... I think a life coach, you know, there are lots of ways that people describe it. Some say it's like a personal trainer for your mind. Some say it's like a, you know, a kind of a cheerleader. I think it's someone who kind of takes you through your own personal strategic planning process. So it works out where you are now, where you want to be and how to get you there. Mm. There are so many different kinds of coaching modalities, though. So some life coaches are very goal-oriented, very structured. We do this in session one, we do this in session two, which is perfect for some people. Mm. I don't work like that at all. I do have a psychology background. So mm. although we don't delve into the past too much, I certainly believe that our past has determined our present mm. and we need to understand our past in order to make changes in our present to change our future. Mm. Mm. I want to focus in now on your recent book on burnout, and that's kind of come out of your life coaching practice mm. as well. Mm. You speak about burnout reaching epidemic proportions in South Africa, but you're also coming at it, obviously, from your own experience. Yeah. What's led you down this road besides your experience? So I think that my specialization, I suppose, as a life coach is working with adult children. Mm. And my definition of an adult child is someone who had a childhood that was inconsistent or unpredictable in some way or for some time. And that can be because of parents who had addiction issues or financial issues or were divorced or there were no parents or the kids were sent to boarding school or any kind of uncertainty that mm. happens in the childhood. And even if... The children had a very stable childhood. 
If the macro environment is not stable, I think it creates or leads to some of the characteristics of adult children. Mm. So I really firmly believe that most people, if not all people in this country, are adult children or have some of the characteristics Mm. because we've never had a consistent or predictable time in this country. And so some of those characteristics are things like we guess what normal is. We are intensely loyal, even in the face of clear evidence that that loyalty may be misplaced. We can be quite impetuous and commit ourselves to things before thinking them through properly. Mm. We lie when it's just as easy to tell the truth. Mm. So we say we're fine when actually we're not fine. We're either super responsible or super irresponsible. And usually we're super responsible to everybody around us and super irresponsible towards ourselves. Mm. We struggle to ask for help. We struggle to say no. So all of these things make adult children very prone to burnout Mm. because we don't know how to say no. We don't know how to ask for help. We feel like we have to keep going on. We are very what I call others-centered. So we make everybody else the center of our universe and Mm. we put ourselves on the periphery. So I worked with my clients on the adult child stuff for years. And as I was working on that, I started to notice that most of my clients also had early stages, mid stages, or full-blown burnout. Mm. And so that was what led me to start working on the burnout, not only because of my own experience, because I am a repeat burnout offender, but also my clients. I see so many, most of my clients, even if they haven't come for burnout coaching, they come for career coaching or something to do with what's going on in their lives, the vast majority of them are some way along the continuum of burnout. You have a lovely definition in your book on what burnout is. Let's talk about that. Your definition of burnout. Of having nothing left to give. Yes. Yeah. And very often as well, and you alluded to it there, when you went to the doctor yourself and you said, give me tablets, I'm depressed, we can confuse depression and burnout. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd been to the doctor a few years previously and I thought I had burnout and I said, I'm so tired and I'm not sleeping and I, please, can you give me sleeping pills? And he spoke to me for a while and he said, no, Hmm. you are not. There's nothing. I mean, he said, I'm not giving you sleeping pills. First of all, they're addictive. And secondly, they're not going to solve the problem. The problem is that you are depressed. He's a very wise man, my doctor. Mm. Seems <laughs> Ca- like it. Catholic, by the way. Oh. <laughs> um, we do some good things from time to time. Absolutely. <laughs> so, actually, yeah, a lot of people ask me, how do you tell the difference between burnout and depression? Because they often are confused with each other. Mm. And so my description is, or my definition is, that burnout is a feeling of being tired from life, whereas depression is a feeling of being tired of life. Mm. And that's right in the beginning of your book. I found that very powerful. And I also find it very helpful to hear that tired because of what's going on in your life at that time. What are the sort of symptoms of burnout? I mean, you do list them. And I certainly don't want to say to people, we're going to talk about everything. Yes, you don't need to read the book. Go and read the book. But just some of the symptoms as you see them that are quickly identifiable. So the ones that I see are... A sense of ennui, a lack of energy, a lack of enthusiasm. People are dragging themselves around. They are struggling with their relationships. So there's a lot of conflict or friction in their relationships, be they professional relationships at work or personal relationships at home. They're waking up feeling exhausted. Mm. They are lacking motivation. And one of the most visible ones actually is craving sugar, carbohydrates, caffeine and salt. So when I used to work with the police, Mm. honestly, they used to be at eight o'clock in the morning, they would either be drinking coffee or Red Bull or Coke, Mm. all of them. 
Mm. because you have to kind of kickstart yourself in the morning mm. and then obviously throughout the day also. But that is one of the most obviously evident symptoms of burnout in addition to the more emotional and intellectual and physical symptoms of just feeling tired. You get very tired mentally and physically after much less exertion than mm-hmm. it normally takes to get you to be tired. In the book as well, you and you've alluded to it once again, you give these descriptions and you also help a person to understand that this is not just a mind issue or a tiredness issue. This is a diet issue. There's a social dynamic that's happening. Yeah. You speak in places as well just about things like exercise, mm. fresh air, etc., etc. Yeah. So it really is an all-encompassing thing if one is going to begin to move to correcting what's mm. happening. Mm. Absolutely. So I think that burnout affects us on all five life uh-huh. areas. So it's emotional. Mm-hmm. It's physical, it's mental or intellectual, it's spiritual, mm. and it's relational. It's our relationships as well. It's a whole systemic issue. Mm. And it doesn't get addressed by just looking at eating differently or just looking at having a holiday or whatever. You have to take a systemic approach to it. Mm. You know, often my clients come to me and they say, I've booked three days off and I think I'm going to feel better afterwards. And I'm sorry, I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings, but, you know, as I always say, it's not like chicken pox burnout. You don't just wake up with it one morning. It takes a long time to develop. And it takes time and effort to kind of turn it back and to reverse it. You say in South Africa it's reached epidemic proportions. I mean... Do you think it's different to other parts of the world? And do you think we've constructed a society in South Africa and a social culture that is inevitably leading people down the path to burnout? It's interesting because I think that the whole world is kind of experiencing a whole lot of stresses and strains which are universal. Mm. So, you know, economy, politics, social dynamics, inequality, all of those kinds of things. But I think that South Africans are particularly prone to burnout for the reasons that I mentioned earlier. Mm. I think that because there are so many adult children in this country, we do struggle to ask for help and we do struggle to say no and we do struggle to know, you know, what is a normal expectation of me? If my Mm. boss is expecting me to work 80-hour weeks, is that normal? Is Mm. that okay? One of the other things is that we tend to judge ourselves without mercy. So, you know, we have no sense of when it's okay to stop. We push ourselves and push ourselves. And so I think that that, in addition to a whole lot of specific things that we are dealing with in this country, you know, we have so many child-headed households. We have what I call succeeder guilt, where lots of my clients come to me and they're in jobs or situations that really are making them unhappy and are exhausting them and making them feel overwhelmed, but they feel trapped there because Mm. the weight of expectation Mm. from their extended families is so huge. And it's not even necessarily only expectation, but it's also people rely on them. They rely on their salaries. Mm. And so it's really hard for many people in this country to say, you know what, I actually don't want to do this. I want to be doing something else. I was unbelievably lucky. My late father always used to say to us, it doesn't matter how much money you're making. If it's not making you happy, it's not worth it. Mm. which I think is an amazing life lesson. But it also comes from a very privileged place, you Mm. know. And I think the vast majority of people in this country don't have that privilege of 
being able to say it's not making me happy, so I'm not going to do it anymore. Mm. There's no real safety net to fall back on. Mm. And so, yeah, I do think that there are some specific aspects of burnout that are particular to South Africa. It's kind of tied into an expectation and a view of success Mm. that, you know, if you just keep going Mm. and you just keep doing it, Mm. you're actually a successful person. And somehow in our DNA is this sense, if I don't or if I'm not successful, I'm a failure. And therefore... I'll be cast aside or whatever. And so we push and we push and we push. Yeah. And also, what is success? What does success look like? And I think that there's such a kind of a material way Mm. of seeing success. It's the cars, it's the houses, it's the clothes, it's the jewelry, it's the shoes, whatever. And actually, I think that we've got so disconnected from ourselves We've got so removed from what is important to us. Our social selves are such a big driver that we feel like success is those material, observable things. Whereas actually, I think success is leading a meaningful and happy life that makes you feel as though you're making a contribution and it feels rewarding to you as an individual. Mm. We're doing things all the time and on the outside, we perceive people are evaluating us by what we have or what circles we move in. Mm. And yet we're living with this inner dissonance the whole time. Exactly. And that inner dissonance is sort of just eating away at yeah. your energy yeah. and your your life, really. Absolutely. I say that I think that burnout is an existential emergency because mm. I think that it's this dissonance that you say, exactly. We feel like we have to present ourselves in a certain way to be accepted. But actually inside, it's just this like screaming, our soul is screaming and saying, this is not what I want. Mm. This is not how I want to be spending my time and my precious energy. Mm. You spoke about it being a spiritual crisis. Well, the doctor said Mm. to you, you're having a spiritual Mm. crisis. And the word spiritual has got many connotations. Let's just unpack that a little bit. Because in a way, that dissonance is really the spiritual crisis. Yeah. What I mean when I say that is I think that our spirit is It's our life force. Mm. It's who we are. It's the part of us that makes us happy and unhappy or whatever. It's hard to define, but it's like our essence. Mm. And I think that it's the part of us that we connect with when we are quiet Mm. and when we are still. And we are actually spending time just allowing ourselves to hear that inner voice or a voice. Yeah, and I think that this spiritual crisis is a result of rushing around, being busy all the time, doing stuff, pushing ourselves, doing, 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 Mm. and just getting so disconnected from ourselves and our own needs and wants. Do you think busyness is an addiction? Yeah, I do. Mm. I really do. I think that there's a kind of a, a physical response that the adrenaline gets released. It's like having a Red Bull. So when the levels drop, mm. then we have to get busy to bring it up again. But I also think a lot of it is it's avoidance. It's running around so that we don't have to actually sit still and listen because I think that so often we're so scared of what we will discover about ourselves and the choices that we have made that we just keep busy so we don't have the time to think about it. And we live in a world now where you can almost avoid any time and space alone. I noticed, for example, on retreats, you know, if you send people off for 20 minutes or half an hour silence and they go and find a place under the tree and they sit down, the first thing they do is pull out a cell phone. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we've created this kind of culture yeah, as well yeah. where we've negated mm. any sense mm. of the silent mm. or the still or mm. space mm. because we can fill it exactly. at any moment yeah. under the tree 
on a silent day, mm. you could be flooded with all this news mm. through mm. a device. Mm. Absolutely. You're sitting in the most beautiful environment. You're not even noticing it because mm. you're you glued to your phone. Mm. And I do think that's partly an addiction, but I also think it is because of fear. So my first homework, so to speak, that I give to my clients is I say to every single client, I want you to spend 20 minutes every day doing nothing. You can journal if you have to, you know, or you can go for a gentle walk, but I don't want you to listen to anything. I don't want you to talk to anyone. I don't want you to read anything. Most of them look absolutely terrified. And so I say, okay, well, let's start with five minutes and work your way up. And often I say to them, you know, do it in the car. We've put ourselves under so much pressure to feel productive all the time. So fine, if you're driving in the car, turn the radio off. Don't look at your phone. Don't speak to anyone. That's a great time. You know, before cell phones, mm. that's how we used to spend our time. We used to spend our time in our commute to and from work, whether we were walking or driving or riding a bicycle or catching a taxi or whatever, but we would just be with our own thoughts. Mm. And that, I really believe, has got a lot to do with why we have got such a big problem with burnout, because we are all not connecting with ourselves. Mm. Positive psychologists are also saying this. I mean, more and more there's the sense of if you want to rewire your brain, which they say you can do in X amount of days, I forget yeah. exactly the number, but they're kind of saying that an integral part of that is the sitting still mm. and mm. building it up to mm. at least 20 minutes mm. a day. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's fascinating. Mm. It is fascinating. So you, you outlined the symptoms of burnout. Mm. Can somebody recover from burnout? Absolutely. What, is there a possibility of a relapse? Mm. Yeah. Your thoughts on that? <laughs> okay. So, yes, you can recover from burnout. And, yes, there is a possibility of a relapse. And I say that having had three or four bouts of burnout myself. It's definitely possible to recover from burnout. But unless you make fundamental changes to how you live your life and how you make the choices you make, there is a very good chance that you're going to have burnout again. Because burnout is very much about who you are. It's very much about how you are in the world, the choices you make, the relationships you have, how you drive yourself. And so unless you understand the drivers that lead us to pushing ourselves into that state of overwhelm and exhaustion, unless we understand what those are and we change them, then we will get burnout again. So I've actually, in the book, I've separated it into two sections. The first is regain. So that's mm -hmm. regaining your energy and kind of recovering from burnout. And the second is maintain. And that's mm -hmm. about understanding our thoughts, our habits, the way we interact with the world around us and helping the reader to think about ways to do those differently so that you don't get burnout again. You offer many little exercises in the book as well to help people in the first section, but also in the second section to do that. And when you say fundamental changes, I think in a way those are also prevention. Definitely. You, you speak about prevention. Yeah. yeah. What are the ways that people can begin to prevent? One of the things, for example, that strikes me mm. is you read the first section and you have little exercise, and I'm thinking, oh, seven out of eight, you know, <laughs> uh, four out of six. Is this where I am? Yeah. So you, you help us to measure. Mm. What are the ways that you think we begin to mm. change, to prevent it? So I think the first thing, honestly, the most powerful thing you can do is to get still and quiet for 20 minutes every mm. day and to tune into yourself. And I have these three questions. All, you know, all of these exercises are incredibly simple. Well, I mm. like to think they're incredibly simple, but they're really powerful. They're not necessarily easy because they do require a change of mindset often. But if you sit still and quiet every single day and you ask yourself, what am I feeling? 
whether it's physical or emotional. So maybe I'm feeling tired. And then you say, why am I feeling this way? And maybe it's because you didn't get enough sleep last night. And then the third question is, what do I want to do about it? And maybe it's go to bed earlier tonight. And they're really simple questions. But the unfortunate thing is because we are so disconnected from ourselves, we often don't do that. We don't actually ask ourselves, what do I need? What am I feeling? You know, so often clients will come into my office at the end of the day and I'll say to them, so what are you feeling? Let's get quiet and still, what are you feeling? And they'll say, I've got a headache. And I'll say, why do you think you've got a headache? And then they'll realize that they haven't had anything to drink all day. They've had absolutely no water because they've been running around. Mm. Or what am I feeling? Mm, actually, I realize I need to go to the bathroom. Mm. Why? Because I haven't allowed myself to go to the bathroom all day. Mm. And that's the thing. If we just can connect with ourselves, mm. then we can listen to what our bodies are telling us. And what our bodies are telling us is so important or our emotions i'm feeling angry why are you feeling angry because i let ways bring me to this meeting this morning and it brought me a really stupid way and was because i wasn't trusting my own instincts what do you want to do about it i want to actually be less reliant on technology and more reliant on my own experience and wisdom mm. so that's the first thing 20 minutes asking those questions and then I think that somewhere, I can't remember where it is. I think it might be at the back of the book. I have this thing called out the spanner mm -hmm. and it's seven mm -hmm. steps to, and if you do those every day. So the first is self, mm. checking in with yourself. What do I need? How am I feeling? What do I want? The P is for peace and quiet, get still and quiet every day. The A is for asking and accepting help. Mm. The first N is for saying no. The second N is for nourishing yourself, so eating proper food and thinking proper thoughts and spending time with people who nourish you rather than drain you. Mm. And then exercise. Because, you know, when we get burnout, we tend to turn into a bit of a couch potato. <laughs> mm. And it doesn't mean going to an hour spinning class three days a week. It means even five minutes to start off with walking to the end of the road and back. Mm. Just get your body moving, get the blood circulating. And the R is for reconnecting with people. Because when we are burnt out, we tend to withdraw socially. I always say we kind of go down mm. to the first level of Maslow's hierarchy. Mm. We're in survival mode. So there's no kind of time and space for relationships relationships or hobbies or that kind of thing and that's important for us to reconnect with we kind of also in the spiritual game you'll say to someone can you find 10 minutes a day and many people will say well you know i go to work early i've got the demands of children i get home i've got to do dinner i've got to, i'm just too exhausted i can't mm. find time mm. And this is another thing which I hear more and more. I just cannot find, how do you expect to find 20 minutes? I can't even find five minutes for myself. Mm. What's your advice to people like that? Well, my advice is to question whether you can't find the time or whether maybe you don't want to find the time. Because mm. I think we can always find the time. And as I say, I think that a brilliant place to find the time is in your commute. Mm. So whatever time it takes for you to get from, even if you're dropping your kids off at school, whatever time it takes from there to your destination is time for you. Mm. If you turn the radio off and you turn your cell phone off and you aren't listening to what's going on in the world outside and you're not responding to phone calls and catching up on emails or dictating whatever, that can be your time. Mm. And I really do. I think that we can find the time. And I often say to my clients, sometimes the best thing you can do for yourself is nothing. Mm. And we get into this 
like hamster wheel where we have to be doing more, doing more, doing more. And actually, often finding that time that you speak of, taking 10 or 20 minutes just to regroup, just to ask yourselves those questions. What am I feeling? Why am I feeling this way? What do I want to do about it? What can I say no to? What can I ask for help with today? It actually makes you more efficient. Mm. It makes you more effective because it allows you to think clearly. Mm. One of the things you also mention in the book a few times is this question of journaling or writing mm. down and just your free thoughts. Mm. Why? Because there's something very powerful that happens when you are writing with a pen and a paper that I don't understand the science of it. I'm sure there is a science to it, but I've never understood it. It doesn't matter. It feels like magic to me. Mm. It feels like when you are writing, there's a point where your mind stops and your spirit or your inner voice or I don't know, whatever you want to call it, takes over. Mm. And so it's a way to connect with your inner wisdom. Mm. And however you would, maybe it's God's voice, maybe it's your inner wisdom, however you interpret that. But it's unbelievably powerful and you start to learn things about yourself. Honestly, when I was doing my morning pages, I absolutely, I, I, it's, I can't even describe it. You know, most of the time when you're thinking, you have the thought a split second before you say it or you write it. Mm. But you reach a point where you're doing journaling or the morning pages or whatever it's called, where actually you write it before you think it. Mm. It's unbelievably powerful and magical. Mm. And we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation today if I hadn't been journaling because that's absolutely what happened to me when my my hand told me that I wanted to become a life coach. coach. Mm. Assumedly, one also goes back and looks over those pages, not just a question of writing and writing books full, but going back and looking at what I wrote and, and almost reflecting on, on my own inner wisdom, as you put it, yeah. which is very important. Yeah, you can do that. And sometimes they say you don't even have to read it again. But I think it is helpful to go back if there's a particular period in your life that you want to go back to and kind of remember what was going on there or remember what you were telling yourself. Absolutely. But I think the power in it is in the actual doing. So often if I'm doing a workshop or even a course, the first thing I ask, well, actually, it's the second thing. The first thing I ask them to do is to sit quietly for 15 minutes, which completely freaks them out. But anyway, <laughs> and then I ask them to write at least half a page to answer the questions, why am I here? Mm. Why am I doing this thing? What do I hope to get out of it? Mm. And what fears and anxieties might I have related to it? Mm. And that's helpful because it helps them to be present. And then it also at the end, we go back and they can see, did they achieve what they were hoping to achieve? Mm. We've been focusing on burnout of an individual you work with groups and in corporate areas mm. as well. Do you get a sense as well that in as much as individuals can burn out, groups and corporates can also burn out? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is a kind of, in organizations that are burnt out, I think there is a general malaise. There's a general kind of lack of energy. There's a general lack of enthusiasm. There's a general kind of sense of plodding along. So it's almost like the individual thing in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. But it's interesting. I wrote an article recently and there's a podcast on it where I talk about Pareto's principle and burnout. Mm. And you know, that's the 80-20 rule where they say, I mean, obviously it's not entirely 80-20, but on average. So, for instance, 80% of results are achieved by 20% of the input. Mm. In crime prevention terms, we say 80% of crimes are committed by 20% of offenders. And 20% of victims account for 80% of the crime. Mm. Obviously, it's an average. I believe that, certainly in the public sector, where I've been doing quite a lot of work over the last few years, 
20%, and I think it's true in corporates as well, 20% of the people, of the workers, mm. are responsible for 80% of the results wow. and of the efficiency. And from a kind of a public sector perspective, this is a problem because those 20% have got burnout. Mm. They are exhausted. They are finished. They are like really running on the smell of an oil rag. Mm. And you can see it. You can see it in all the resignations that are going on in the public service sector mm. at the moment. And that's a problem because if those, if even half of that 20, but the 20 percenters, as I call them, leave, mm. then productivity is going to really plummet mm. because they're going to leave a vacuum, not just a hole, but a vacuum. So it's not just that the organizations themselves get burnout, because I do believe that the public service and corporate are able to get burnout. Mm. But I think that those key individuals within those institutions are basically propping up those institutions and we need to pay attention to it. Hmm. Do you find that in some professions, burnout is much more likely than others? Yeah. yeah. So I think that anywhere where people are exposed to the hardships of others hmm. or trauma or stress, they are particularly prone to. So doctors, nurses, teachers, journalists, police officers. I think that anyone who's involved with dealing with people and dealing with hardship is particularly prone to burnout because one of the other aspects of burnout is compassion fatigue. Mm. And compassion fatigue is it's real. It's just when we are exposed to people's suffering, mm. it takes its toll on us. Mm. That's fascinating because very often I think, and maybe this is my perception, people often talk about burnout and one thinks it's coming from people in corporate sectors mm. who are running big corporates. Mm. Mm. The CEOs are the people that burn yeah. out. Yeah. Whereas actually you saying people like teachers and yeah. police officers, yeah. which is not that sort of sector that yeah. maybe we often perceive yeah. it's in. Absolutely. And yeah. I think it's also stay-at-home moms and students. My goodness, students and learners at the moment, they're under so much pressure and there's just so many demands on them that I think that I honestly believe that burnout is an equal opportunities disease. Mm. It'll affect anybody who is not able to have clear enough boundaries to keep enough of the bad stuff out. Oh. Yeah. Mm. I think it's about doing too much of the wrong things, not mm. morally wrong, but things that are wrong for us. So saying yes when we should be saying no and agreeing to do things that we really don't want to do. Taking nine or 10, 11 subjects from a trick, because mm. that's what people think you're so clever and you should be doing that. But I mean, really? Mm. Sure, it affects people in corporate, but I think that they're the tip of the iceberg, quite honestly. You mentioned students, and very often there's this idea that there's a link between depression in mm. students and suicide. Mm. What is your thoughts around burnout and suicide? So I think that burnout really can be an extremely serious disease. And if it isn't addressed, it progresses into something more serious. So mm. it can progress into physical things like diabetes, high blood pressure, strokes, heart attacks, and it can progress into emotional dis-ease mm. that can lead to depression. But I also think that suicide really is about people feeling alone and hopeless and feeling like it's just nothing's ever going to change. Mm. And so if your burnout has reached the point where the circumstances that are creating the burnout feel so unchangeable and so rigid that you feel so trapped by them, then I think, yeah, it can definitely lead to people thinking about suicide. Mm or even committing suicide. I mean, it's a very, very terrible, horrible place to be. And I really do. I always say in any talks I'm giving or anyone I speak to, 
please, if you have any of these, even early symptoms of burnout, you need to take it seriously and you need to seek help because it really can progress into very, very horrible, life-threatening situations. If you had to give just one sentence or so of advice to people, if someone's listening to this and saying, you know, maybe that's me, maybe I'm burnt out, or maybe it's led to depression, what would you say? Ask for help. Ask for help. Mm. Yeah, and you say Mm. that over and over in the Mm. book as well. Ask for help is the most powerful thing that Mm. we can do, Mm. and yet it's the most difficult thing for us to do. We make ourselves so vulnerable when we ask for help. Mm. So when you ask for help, you need to ask for help mindfully. And so to really think about what is the help that I need? What do I need? Do I need help with my workload? Do I need emotional help? Do I need physical help? Do I need financial help? Work, figure out what is the help that I need. Mm. And then figure out who is the most likely person to say yes. Mm. So it's no good asking for help from your boss who's a psychopath, mm. you know. <laughs> Ask for help from somebody who you know you're going to get the help from or that you feel that you have a very good expectation of getting that help from. And if you can't work that out immediately, then ask for help from a counselor or a therapist or a coach or a, you know, we've got, I know you really need a lot of resources to mm. afford coaching, I think. But there are plenty of free resources. The South African Depression and Anxiety Group is a fantastic resource that is free, that there are counselors on the other side of the phone all the time. There's FAMSA. There are all sorts of places that are affordable to any kind of income level. And don't feel as though not having a lot of money should preclude you from getting help because there is help. Mm-hmm. Judy, how do you think by sharing your own journey, by writing this book, you are helping to expand the horizons of hope? I hope (laughs) that I'm helping to expand the horizons of hope by helping people to give themselves permission to really connect with themselves and to give themselves what they need and to ask themselves, you know, what is it that I want and what is it that I need? And to I think that burnout can be an enormous opportunity if you use it wisely, because it's an opportunity to change things in your life that aren't working for you, whether they're thought processes or relationships or hobbies or whatever. It really is an opportunity to take stock of your life and say no to the things that aren't working for you. Mm. Ask for help where you need it and to reconnect with yourself and to make different choices for yourself so that you lead a happier, more fulfilling, more meaningful, more rewarding life. Judy Clippen, thank you very much for your time for coming in to do this podcast. Judy is a certified life coach and also the author of Recover from Burnout, Life Lessons to Regain Your Passion and Purpose. And I would really advise that you get yourself a copy of that book. Thanks, Russell. Please comment and subscribe to our podcast for more candid conversations, passionate people and important issues. Expanding Horizons is produced by the Jesuit Institute South Africa with music and sound by Francis Tucson. This episode was presented by Russell Pollitt. Visit us at www.jesuitinstitute.org.za.